0: Welcome to the Board Game Design Lab podcast. Each week, we want to bring you an insightful interview on a specific topic in board game design to help you design and create games people love. And now, here's your host, Gabe Barrett. What's up, my friends? Welcome to the Board Game Design Lab. Today, we're talking about working on multiple projects at the same time. We're talking about how to juggle all the different game ideas you've got in your head, you've got in your notebook, you've got in playtesting and prototypes, all that good stuff. And we're talking to Daryl Andrews, a guy that's got a ton of games he's working on or has in the works right now. So, Daryl, really appreciate you being on the show.
1: Well, I really appreciate being on the show. I'm a fan of the Board Game Design Lab, and I'm just uh, excited to be here to chat about a really important topic that I tried to juggle and uh, I think we'll talk about some of the, the strengths and cons to juggling lots of projects, but uh, I'm still trying to figure it out myself. So I'll, I'll share some of the things that I've learned along the way and and then more likely point to smarter and better people than I that, I, that I've learned some tricks from.
0: Yeah. Now this this is a topic I'm excited to hear about. I know a lot of listeners want to hear about. You know, I get a lot of emails from people that kind of tell me about their challenges, tell me their you know stuff they're dealing with, give me ideas for shows. I've got some incredible emails over the last few months. But the two topics that come up more often than any other, number one, is time. Like I just the people say I just don't have time to design or to play test or to do all these things. I wish I had more time. But the second most popular thing is I have too many ideas. I've got too much in my head. I've got too many games I want to do. I want to design. I don't know which ones to focus on, which ones to work on, which ones to shelf. So I'm really excited to kind of hear your thoughts and ideas on, on your process and how, how you do it. But just in case people aren't familiar with Daryl M. Andrews, Daryl Mandrews, as I like to say, because it's just meh, <laughs> it's just Mandrews. Uh, you know, kind of give me your bio, you know, what games you've done. That kind of thing. How do you get into design?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So um, I started actually with a game with co-design. I do a lot of co-design. So that's, uh, first of all, going to be my tip number one, uh, is if you do co-design, that helps you juggle more than one uh, one project at a time. So my first project was with Steven Sauer, and we did The Walled City, published by Mercury Games. And uh, we really learned a lot from the process. It was a fantastic time for us. Um, received... Uh, Some decent, uh, you know, reviews and such, but it was pretty under the radar and and unfortunately didn't really uh, hit the masses per se. But uh, I love that game. Even to this day, I I, I love playing it. So that's where I started. And then uh, from there... Uh, Steven and I did Caffeine Rush, which is a small card game with r r games. It's a speed game of battling baristas. Uh, plays up to six players. And, uh, again, another learning experience, fun game. Reached kind of a, a niche uh, of people, but uh, the people that it did find really enjoyed it. Uh, from there, then, uh, more recently, I've been involved with uh, Fantasy Fantasy Baseball. Uh, that came out actually just recently, but kickstarted that um about a year and a bit ago, and then actually just currently, um, well, uh, just a few months ago, uh, did uh, Fantasy Fantasy Football on Kickstarter as well. Um, Games that are out that people might have seen, I have um, Tower of London with WizKids, uh, Mine All Minds with IDW, uh, Sagrada with Floodgate, and then uh, a few more games that are uh, just starting to kind of pop up or review copies are, are floating around right now.
0: Yeah, and actually, you work with IDW, is that right?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So, uh, a couple years ago, I decided to quit all my jobs. I had kind of been juggling a few jobs. I quit them all with uh, the incredible support of my wife, and we uh, decided I would try to do this game design consulting slash developing thing full-time, and uh, so... Uh, thankfully, no kids right now, so I had a little bit of flexibility to you know, chase the dream. I would say most people need to do it on the side as a hobby and just slowly work away. But it, I, I was thankful that I could uh, just try to run with both feet and go to as many cons as I could. And so recently, I picked up um, kind of a, a consulting gig with IDW. They hire me halftime to consult for them, and I do game design development for them. Uh, so that means I'm at shows looking for games for them sometimes, if I see something that's a good fit for something they're already looking for. Um, and then more importantly, when a game is signed, my main job is developing the game in-house, making sure to tighten up any loose edges and uh, get it ready for for the production side. So basically when a game gets signed, it goes to me. Uh, and then when the game is playing you know, at its what we think is its optimal level, without you know always tweaking because a yeah. game could always be worked on. We pass it on because those production and sales people like to make money and like to <laughs> try to get that game out the door. So yeah,
0: the business part that if that doesn't exist, none of us
1: none of us can do any of this. So exactly. Unnecessary. Yeah. Now, how did you decide,
0: okay, I'm going to do this? Like, at what point? Because I've had people say, oh, I want to be a game designer. I just want to do this full time. I want to quit my job. How did, like, at what point did you go, okay, I'm going to do this, and this is how I know I feel like it's going to work?
1: Yeah, that's a good question. That's a tough question from person to person, for sure. I can can honestly say uh, both year one and year two, I wasn't sure it was going to work. Uh, and there were some lean months. So, I mean, hey, uh, board games do not pay great, uh, even when you're busy. So uh, it's definitely got to be a passion, and you got to have some uh, some solutions or options if, uh, if things get thin. Um, for me, it often was uh, trying to make sure I had a, a high volume of games because um, going to shows and trying to show a variety of publishers – games. That means you need a variety of designs, and that means you need to be working on them a lot. I got to the point where I thought I had kind of a a good catalog, and so that was, for me, my chance to give it a try. And then, thankfully, the really, things like the work with IDW has made it sustainable. I don't know if I I could have kept up the pace otherwise. Yeah, that's a
0: great point with having a variety of different games at different Weights, complexities, game length, all that kind of stuff. That's a good, really good point. You know, a lot of people that say I want to do this thing full time, they've really only got that one game. Like they're working on that one game, or maybe two games that maybe most publishers wouldn't even be interested in. And so, have that kind of catalog. If you're going to do it, have a catalog of games that way you can you have more options.
1: Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, even uh, having, uh, like you said, different weight of games, different style of games. It, it made me even think through like. Uh, I have a, a kids game that's signed. I have you know party games that are signed, dice games. So you really you want to challenge yourself to be versatile, yeah. and so that that gives you more publishers that you have potential to work with.
0: Yeah, definitely. All right, so give me just a ballpark number. How many games are you working on right now?
1: <laughs> oh man, that's a scary number. I was afraid you were going to ask that question. Yeah, I went uh, on the
0: uh, the board game geek page, like your page on BGG. And like the list of design credits and development credits, it's it's a little insane. Like I am amazed. You and Scott Alms like blow me away with the number of games you seem to just be working on at any given moment. But just give me a ballpark number.
1: Yeah, uh, Scott is incredible. Oh, he's, uh, he's a I robot. Men- if I can be mentioned in the same sentence as Scott, I'm doing o- I'm doing okay <laughs> in my books. Yeah. Um. But myself, I mean, I have I have about thirty five to forty games that are signed and only a, a half dozen that are out. Yeah. So I always offer to help a publisher with whatever game isn't published yet. So that would be about 30 or so. I probably have a I usually have 15 to 20 games on me at each show mm-hmm. at various stages to pitch. And then now with IDW I have probably another 20 to 30 games on my head for development okay, so that's like a hundred with all those
0: numbers added together is ish around
1: a hundred yeah a little i'd like to say less than a hundred but yes yeah probably.
0: that's crazy and so I, yeah I'm, I'm excited to kind of hear your thoughts on how to juggle how to maintain manage all those games at the same time but first let's let's talk about your process all right so how do you like start designing a game you know what what does that process look like from the beginning from the initial spark
1: Absolutely. So I steal ideas from everyone else. No, yeah. I'm just kidding. Yeah. No. Uh, there's like you were saying actually at the beginning about how there's so many ideas out there. I really think there are. And so anyone out there that is worried about their designs being stolen, do not worry about that. It, first of all, is all about execution. Right. It's all about spending the time and the work to develop an idea into being more. Uh, but ideas, they, they pop all over the place and um, they... I have ideas, but then, as I mentioned earlier, I love co-designing. So I often find other people and brainstorm, hey, do any of this You know, short list? I have a I have a book that I just like journal in, and I just – whenever an idea pops up, I just throw it in the journal. And um, those ideas just kind of float there until I find – often until I find either a game, like it hits me in the shower or something, like more of an idea, or I find someone else um, that – resonates with it, that finds that concept interesting and is willing to do the work to now uh, chisel that idea out of the rock and make it, you know, what it needs to be. So that's usually the start is kind of brainstorming and bouncing ideas off of another designer and seeing if any of them kind of stick. Then from there, um, I mean, usually the idea is, is probably thematic, but sometimes mechanically driven but then it's very quickly trying to get that idea out of our heads and onto the table, whatever that looks like. So that forces, uh, both worlds to interact pretty quickly. And then from there, um, just test, iterate, test, iterate, test, iterate, just go into town with, um, trying to flesh something out. I think, uh, I think it takes, um, process and the process, especially with other people, is a very telling thing. So I also not only try to rush as fast as I can to get it to the table, but I also try to get in front of other people as fast as I can to see if there's even a spark that people go, Oh, that's interesting. Or, "Oh, I'd like to play in that world. If you're not hearing any of those sparks and that's a, that might be a, a quick opportunity to ditch that idea.
0: Yeah, and I think that leads right into my, my next kind of question or point is how do you decide, how do you determine what games to pursue, what ideas to pursue? Because I've seen so many people, they'll post on the Facebook groups, of you know, the board game design forum, whatever, and they say, hey, here's my game idea. And then they kind of go into things. And as soon as I read their idea, it's like, oh, that's dumb. Like, nobody's going to buy that. <laughs> like, that is not yeah. a good, like, that might be a game you love and your friends and your dog and your mom, they all love it. But people aren't going to get behind that. And so how do you kind of determine, okay, this is this is a game worth pursuing?
1: Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, one of them is the validation of of others. And when I say others, I don't mean like your, your mom and dad and your spouse. And, yeah. you know, you got to get outside of that. You got to get uh, to people that are willing to break your heart, kill your darling. And uh, I think it's also important to get it in front of ideally other designers because yeah. they're going to be asking important questions like, uh marketability or scalability or you know production questions which i think are really important to even consider early on in your quest to design because um that's going to save you some potential pitfalls later on where you might even have a good idea or a good game but it's still not possible to make so tackling those questions early um i i really think good is just not good enough anymore so i'm more and more find if the game is just getting a okay you know that was interesting like that's the kiss of death if you yeah. hear like that's interesting uh instead if if people start like brain like i love when you have an early game and people start like telling you what cards you should add mm-hmm. or like that you know people are getting excited because they're like oh and you could do this and you yeah. are like oh that's a great idea let's i'll write that down we'll try that um that's usually when you're seeing people are getting invested another one that i do often because i have a, a few pretty solid playtest groups is um i'll often not bring a game back I'll, I'll push my game the first time or two to the table but then i'll wait until it's requested again yeah. to see see the game to come back and if it's not getting requested then that that game's gonna not necessarily be chucked but it's gonna simmer you know on that back hot stove and just keep kind of just simmering away yeah. and then i'll i'll, I'll you know peek on it every so often but uh it it's probably going to need a pretty good overhaul if uh if it's not getting requested.
0: Yeah, i think that's a really good litmus test to kind of see if there is a demand because again that's that's really what this is about. You know, i was talking to Tony Miller the other day and he actually brought up something that he had heard from you as far as the difference between a game and a product. And if your goal is to get published or to have your game signed by other publishers and them do the work and sell the game and all that, you have to approach it more as a product than a game because they're trying to make money, right? And it's that's that's ultimately, they want to make games and put out great games, but these are products that they're trying to sell. And so kind of talk about that a little bit as far as the difference between a product and a game.
1: Absolutely, I I think it's really important. I think um, we see it in different ways and we talk about it in different ways. But it's anything from what is unique, what's almost some people would call it a gimmick, hmm. but what is that thing that's going to give a table presence? What is that thing that people are like wanting to take a photo with? What yeah. is what is that visual image that if someone saw that they know it's that game instead of just one of any uh, any possible game? Like a picture of a meeple, a dice, and a board is not really gonna jump at you but if all of a sudden you know those those meeples are stacking on each other and they're on top of a pyramid and you know i mean like all of a sudden you 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 have something that people will start talking about and can advertise and market uh so i think i think that is really important to start thinking of and i i actually um now try to think about that as early as possible is what is the big kind of visual moment again people will call it a gimmick but i think it's necessary i think games more and more need that thing that oh yeah did you play that game that has you know blank you know those really cool miniatures with the hex bases that do blah 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 you know like whatever it is i think each game is looking for that uh sometimes that can be accomplished through licenses sometimes that can be accomplished through um the actual components or the tactile Maybe it is a mechanic. It can really be if you have an innovative mechanic. Uh, but I think whatever it is, you can start with familiar recipe items, but then each game needs to differentiate itself. It needs to be able to uh, not only replace something in someone's collection, but for for uh, a company to be able to market it, they need to be able to talk with, with unique language.
0: Yeah, I'm thinking about Stronghold Games. So I follow Stronghold Games on Twitter, and every day I'm hit with a slew of pictures of terraforming Mars on somebody's table somewhere in the world where Stephen Bonacore is just retweeting everybody's picture of Terraform. <laughs> you know, but you know, it's, it's kind of like what you're talking about, though. Do you have a game that somebody wants to take a picture of when they're done and share that? Because that's important. Mm-hmm. That is the difference between a game and a product. And that's the difference between a publisher saying, oh, that's cool, and, oh, I want to publish this because we can make money on it and people are going to really like it. You know, I think you bring up a good point – think about this stuff early. You know, I've got a friend who's who's a publisher. He has his own company. And I will send him an idea or, or a game I'm working on early on and say, hey, would you publish this kind of thing? And I'm not asking him specifically, hey, will you publish my game? I'm asking, is this the type of thing that you as a publisher would look at and go, okay, yes, we can make money off this. Yes, this would work in our market. You know, people would like this. And so it's so, that's, again, goes back to networking. Why it's so good to have people, you know, in the the game industry that are designers and publishers to say, what do you think about this? Because if, if a publisher goes, "Ooh, that's really good. Yeah, that could that could go
1: somewhere." You've probably got a, a good idea, as opposed to just your mom telling you that. Absolutely. I think I think the key, like you said, networking. Um, it comes down to different perspectives, and I think uh, publishers are asking and evaluating games with different with a different perspective than often us as designers. Yeah. And I think it's important to continue to check in with those different perspectives and make sure that what you're making is not only viable and interesting from your perspective, but is from a consumer, from a publisher standpoint, from a marketing standpoint. These are different voices that you, you do have to build up a network to be able to uh, chat about that. But when you do, I think it makes the game overall a better experience. Yeah.
0: Another thing I've been doing recently is anytime I have an idea for a game, I initially I'll think, what kind of public like who would publish this game like who who has games like this like is this uh, some kind of ip that could like you could throw a new theme on it and then match something already in their catalog to kind of be like a follow up game like go ahead and start thinking about those questions because when you get down the road if you do get a finished game it kind of you've already made those decisions to kind of be lined up with a publisher and it makes it a much easier fit and if not well if it's lined up with a publisher in general, there's probably more than one publisher that are that are putting out games like that. And so kind of think about those things early. Now, is that stuff so, is that something you did early on when you were like, all right, I'm gonna do this full time. Did you already have like publishers in mind that you wanted to work with?
1: Yeah, no, I think that's excellent advice and something that I very much focused on. Yeah. So for me, that that part of diversity is also thinking through, okay, which publishers fit this one, which ones fit another. Because what I would do for a show is I would I would Pre-schedule. I'd look through the the publishers that will be attending and I would I'd write them all before the show and Try to schedule an appointment. Then with that I'd bring I would go through my game collection of like prototypes and say now Which of these games fit that publisher? Yeah. Try to kind of pick one two three tops that really would be focused on this is the one I think they would want most and that started to then point out gaps that I had. If all of a sudden I have a meeting with a certain publisher and I have five games and another publisher that I have one, hmm. then I go, OK, well, this is the area I need to you know, focus on next. And so I, over time, it started to give me a little bit more balance of, of having different categories that I'd have a few options so that each time I went for a meeting, I wasn't – I was, I guess – Becoming a, a really positive meeting for the publisher because they felt like they had a few choices instead of just here's one. Yeah. which I think is really helpful to say, hey, you know, here's a few from, you know, my bag of goodies that I think suit you best. And also then it helps early on, as you mentioned, when you're designing, it helps you make some of the decisions because if I go, OK, this is more of a game for Haba. Yeah. which I don't have a game with, but I'd love to have a game with Habba, the decision process with Habba is going to be very different than say, I'm making a game, for example, Stronghold. So, I mean, as you're designing and making you know, decisions, I think that actually is a helpful restraint to yeah. give yourself and say, here are some of the publishers that this game is already starting to lend itself towards. Now, what other decisions would that publisher make throughout the design and development process?
0: Yeah, if, you know, thinking about just different publishers that you know people that I know thinking about Jamie stegmeier over at Stonemire Games. If your game doesn't play up to five players, he's not going to publish it. Like don't right. even approach him with a a two or three player game. It's just not it's not what he does. And so right. I, I really like that that whole restraint thing. It, it it makes decisions for you. If you look at it, and you go okay. I want to I want to publish a game with Stonemire Games. Okay, that means this game has to go up to five players. Okay that's right. going to really determine some different things in my design choices for the game. And so one thing I love is just figuring out people that I respect in the community. Like you're saying Haba, like you really want to publish a game of Haba. Well that's if you really want to publish a game of Haba, you're going to design a certain kind of game for a certain kind of market, certain weight, all that, all that kind of thing. And so Anybody listening to this, if you're designing a game right now and you really want to work with a certain company or a certain group of companies, really start drilling down into the games that that company produces, that they publish, and start making design choices based on that. Um, Unless it's Z-Man, they seem to publish like anything and everything. (laughs) But, you know, like Plaid Hat, they publish very specific types of games. Stonemaier Games, very specific. IDW, very kind of specific types of games. Uh, And so go ahead and start thinking about that early on if you want to get published, now, if you just want to do Kickstarter, if you just want to play games with your family, that's fine. But if you really want to do this thing as a, as a, maybe a, a a profession or you know have this as a money making opportunity or being able to do something you love and make some money on the side, really start thinking about those those decisions. Absolutely. All right, so Daryl, how do you keep track of all these ideas? So you talk about you have your notebook, right, where you're writing stuff down. But I assume it's more than just like pages on pages on pages. Like, Do you have some kind of system to keep track of all these ideas, to manage all these different things?
1: Yeah, that's a, that's a really important question. I wish I had a, a really well-organized system, um, but I don't. I've learned from other people, but I haven't uh, implemented all these kind of changes. Uh, but I do have a few tricks. So, um wow. A significant one that's really helpful and really practical is uh, whenever you're working with co-designers, especially, set up some shared drives. Yeah. You know, if that's a forum, if that's a Google drive, uh, just so that you're always on the same page when it comes to iterations. Uh, so that you can update something and just quickly communicate to the other that it's ready and available. You know, that that you have an idea and you kind of track in there anything from notes. I mean, you can keep track of like what publishers have seen stuff or what uh, feedback you're getting from play tests. Uh, one of the, ne- the strengths of co-design is that you have potentially two two circles of play test groups. And uh, and when you do have that, the, the benefit is the feedback that the con is integrating that feedback. So um, you need to make sure you have some form of uh, communication where you're constantly keeping each other up to date, uh, for me, you know, that's going to be email and Facebook and just phone. Uh, but other people are a little more organized. I mean, using programs like Slack or Jabber or different things like that to keep track of the conversations or even formal forums. I know for myself, I'm part of a, a group called the Game Artisans of Canada. And so we have this network of designers from across Canada and we have this fantastic forum Uh, where we have kind of a backlog of the last, I I don't know, five, ten years of conversations. And the neat thing is that you can even search things. So say you were like, all of a sudden you remember like, oh, whatever happened? Or do we have a contact with this publisher? Um, That becomes a really important tool so that you can track down those details. Uh, But key is then writing reports, you know, after play tests and doing kind of those extra steps to make sure that you have a bit of a paper trail. The other thing that I think is important um, is trying to track where the status of a game is when it comes to not only, um, you know, it's easy when a game's ready to pitch to a publisher. But even tracking where your different games are throughout the design process. So um, I kind of use a little bit of a a labeling or I don't don't know what you would call it, but just kind of I push my games through kind of an alpha, beta delta gamma process and just try to understand which games are at which stage yeah and because of that then i know which games especially just before a show um which games i need to make sure i have components for so that i'm taking to a show and then which games you know i can keep on the shelf or uh or maybe even just plant a seed to publishers about what but no those games aren't quite ready yet
0: yeah. Have you found that working with co designers or co developers kind of helps keep you accountable to keeping those records
1: or to making sure that stuff gets captured and written down? It does because I, when I work by myself, I just assume I'll remember. Right. And then um, when I do, say, for consulting for IDW, I have to write it down because I got to communicate you know, my thoughts to the team. Or if I'm working with a co-designer and I just have, you know, suggested changes, I need to convince that other person. So I need to write down the data, you know, like these people said this and, you know, I think we should go in this direction versus when you're by yourself, you might say to yourself, oh yeah, yeah, I'll remember that next time. And then when you come back to that prototype, you're like, oh, I thought I fixed this, but I don't know what I was thinking before. So I think, I think co-design really helps and it just helps, Um, you stay focused on each game. So it's it's easy for me to start running down, you know, kind of chasing what's working and and clicking, and I think that's really important. Like, don't force a lot of games, but also, you do need to keep coming back to games. So, for instance, if I'm working, I work with a variety of co-designers, well, if all of a sudden I don't talk to one of my co-designers for a while, they're going to come knocking just saying, so where are we at? And vice versa, if I haven't heard from someone, I'm going to you know, ask them, you know, have you thought about this or did you make those changes you said last time? By by having almost a schedule of checking in, a lot of a lot of the designers I work with, we have specific days that we check in with each other and that forces the conversation of just, okay, where are we at? Where are we going? What you know, what stage are these games at?
0: Yeah, and you know, the saying I've heard so often that just keeps proving to be true, what gets scheduled gets done. So when you put it on the to-do list, when it actually goes from being just in the ether of your brain and actually is on a page or is on a schedule, it tends to get done more often than not.
1: Absolutely. Well, and it, it forces you to get it done because right. you don't want to let that other person down. Or deadlines. I I think one of the best things for me is is when I I have that pressure of a convention coming up. So I gotta I gotta make those you know tweaks that I've been just stickering or writing on yep. my cards. But now I need to finally make that next print, yep. and 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 get that prototype to to a better stage.
0: Yeah, that's that's where I'm at right now. You know, as as we're recording this, Origins is, is upon us. And so, you know, I've hopefully got some meetings coming up with Origins. And so I'm like every single night working on the better version, more than just like the pencil drawings, but like trying to actually have the better version of my prototype. And so it's great to have deadlines. It's great to have people holding you accountable. Another thing I want to bring up here is, you know, Matt Leacock, one thing he does whenever he's taking notes or whenever he's writing stuff down, he doesn't just because a lot of us do this. I know I do it. He doesn't just write down how to fix a problem. He writes down what the problem is first. And then writes down some ideas on how to fix it, because so often you'll try to fix it and that won't be the answer. But if you don't have written down somewhere what the problem was originally, you might not even be able to remember. And so, you know, really taking good enough notes to be able to go back in and and really understand where you were during a play test or during a design time or something like that.
1: Yeah, I think I think uh, Matt spot on. I mean, you want to identify the problem. It's great if on the spot you have solution ideas, or even if you brainstorm them at the table. But really, at the end of the day, it's up to the designer to find the solutions, and often, at the moment, isn't the best time that yeah. those solutions come. I think I think the best time, it, it will come to you, but it might not come when you expect it to. So um, identifying those problems, and then giving yourself the space and permission to come back to it, I think is really important. Also, another thing that I, re- I really evaluate uh, throughout the design process is I'm uh, I don't want to say I'm skeptical of playtesters, but everyone's biased and everyone has opinions right. and that gets really enmeshed in the feedback process. So for me, note taking and observation is really key to actually just watch people and see how they're responding. Anything from leaning in at the table versus leaning back, um, you know, Noticing it's their turn versus, you know, kind of needing to be reminded all those little things can become very important tools to 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 note and say okay, you know, maybe it's that play tester note to self. Maybe need to replace them Um, or uh, More importantly um, That's happening and if this becomes a trend then there's a problem even if they're they're You know the game's great if people are responding to it in a negative way there, there's opportunity to make the game better. It might not be the way people suggest, but there's, there's something that needs probably repair.
0: Yeah, and that actually gives me an idea. I need to do an episode with a psychologist or somebody who specializes in human behavior, specifically like unspoken things, you know, like how they, why a person responds, like why do they lean in? Why do they check their phone? Why do they do all these different things that you notice just from people sitting at a table? That would be a really interesting uh, episode. Anything you've learned just in your experience about that kind of stuff?
1: Well, yeah. Well, my my wife is a psychotherapist. Well, there so, you go. <laughs> so yeah. So I hear about it all the time. So yeah. I feel like I got a second education through yeah. just learning and listening to my wife, who's incredible at at her job. And um, I th- I think it's really important. I think that's a really important topic to to be observant. I think it's really easy to just observe the game, and it's really important to just zoom out a bit more. And just observe the table and observe anything. It was funny. I just had this experience from an artist. I've never thought of this. I sometimes, though, thankfully, I take photos Mm -hmm. at different stages in the game. Just it's a quick way for me to reference. Like then I can see like progression of points and do some some type of spreadsheet stuff. Um, and it's my quickest way of not like interrupting and doing all the math uh, at the spot, but evaluating later. Um, but the cool thing was seeing a, an artist contacted me just recently and said, can you send me some photos of the games in action mm-hmm. and send me multiple ones? And I was like, that's a really weird request. I know what I do with that, but I've never thought of an artist requesting that. Yeah. And they they requested it because they like to see how the pieces and the people like play stuff naturally. And they wanted to evaluate that to see, you know, what what areas get piled up more and what you know, how do people like how, you know, what how do they organize their bits okay. or just like all those little things that, again, I that I'm not asking that question, but the artist was the artist was trying to think through the, the function and think through, you know, the spacing and all that kind of like minor details that that I'm appreciative that they do. And that's why they always ask for for even the prototype which isn't final art yeah. the artist is is looking and asking those kind of questions
0: yeah there's so many nuances of things that we're just not really exploring you know as, as games kind of continue to blow up and kind of you know get bigger and bigger and bigger as an in- industry I feel like it's going to be like similar to other industries where we really start drilling into the nuance of things and and not like Moneyball, you know, it's not going to be maybe quite that level of of figuring out the statistics and the you know the ratios and all that. But maybe who knows? Um, but it's going to be interesting over the next handful of years as people really start understanding human psychology more and more. They start building experiences more and more, and it's going to be a lot of fun to kind of be a part of.
1: Absolutely.
0: So how do you? You know, we talked about you know putting a game on the on the simmer you know on on the back the back oven uh eye so to speak but how do you determine when a game just needs to be shelved like when okay i'm working on this game and all these other games when you know this one's just not working i need to put it on the shelf for a while how do you get to that place
1: yeah I mean I mean some of them are just like I've forgotten about them so that's 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 a pretty good stage you got too many like... too many going on you just forget about but them. <laughs> I think I think there's something about that I think there's something real healthy about just yeah. like you know what when you're when there's a spark you go for it it's funny I do some co-design work with a newer designer her name's Erica Bioris and she cracks me up because she's a brand new designer and I think she's gone through like two or three journal books worth of ideas mm-hmm. and she'll just write out like sometimes very detailed ideas of like a game a spark it might be two three pages a full description of mechanic idea all that and whenever we get together i'll go okay read me a few more pages let's see what you got <laughs> and uh, it's funny because we'll never we're, we're never caught up yeah but there will be games that will go okay well here's three that caught my eye let's work on those and we'll start working on the first one and then the second one and we'll forget the third one and instead of like forcing it just move on to the next one yeah. like i if 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 it already was ranked three, it's probably it's probably not that inspired. Right. You know what I mean? Like it might be, and maybe someone will come back. I've definitely had a few games where something came out and I went, Oh man, I forgot about that game. I was working on something like that. But on the flip side, you kind of just go, sweet, now I don't have to worry about designing that. I'll just buy theirs and move on to yeah. the next idea. So I think I think there's there's something really healthy about just kind of forgetting about certain designs. Cause you weren't passionate enough to keep it on the forefront. Then it, it, you know, that darling's a dead one. So I think, I think that's important. I think too, if you're play testing and, and people are just not excited, like you're just reading the table. Mm-hmm. First of all, I try to end those play tests like as soon as possible, right. Like you don't have to drag it out. I, I think that's one thing that you, you earn trust. And uh, from your playtesters, if if you're willing to, you know, take it off the table and not force them to kind of like drag through that and just say, you know what, I already have stuff identified. I'm going to work on that and I'll bring it back when it's at a better place. And when you go and you look at it again and you write down some of the problems, you might just see that it'd be easier to just start anew on something else.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Rob Davia talks about start a game in the middle or start and just play play test one round or one round of combat or something like that. Just enough to give you information, because if you drag on a play test for three hours and it's supposed to be an hour long game, people hate you. Like they don't they don't like you. <laughs> They're, you're not their friend anymore. And so, yeah, just being conscious of people's time, because like you said, it it builds that trust. And yeah. And so if you're not passionate about like, if you don't if you aren't excited about a game, you're not going to see it through like games. It's just too it's too hard. Yeah. For the most part, unless you're coming up with like a five-minute micro game, right? But if you're coming up with a an actual full-length kind of game, it takes too much time. It takes too much effort. If you're not passionate, about it, it's maybe not worth working on because you're not going to see
1: it through to the end. Yeah, I think I think that's a really important point because what I learned even from my first game coming out is when you make a game, you're going to have to play that game a lot of times, <laughs> yeah. and then like. It's not over just through the playtesting. Right. Then it's like the publisher wants to play it a bunch of times, send you feedback, you've got to play it again, give them you know your feedback on their feedback, go through that whole process, then the game comes out. Well, to you, like the game's done, but yes. that's just the beginning. Now people want to play it with you. Right. Uh, Like your friends, your family, you're teaching it at college. Yeah. Yeah. So you better, you better love that game because (laughs) you're going to, you're going to play it a lot.
0: Right. You better love it a lot at the beginning because you're going to hate it by the end. Yeah. And so, yeah, it's just kind of that level. And maybe not. You know, there's, there's games that that people have designed that they love to this day. And I'm sure you've got games that you just, you love this game. And I, I guess that's another thing. Are you creating games that you want to play or are you creating games that will make, you know, will be products, will be money? Because I think there's a balance in there somewhere of creating a game that, yes, a company will publish and sell, but that also you enjoy. Because if you're just doing it to get it published, you you might not love it enough to really see it through to the end.
1: Yeah, I, I think that's actually a lot of the difference between it being a hobby and a job. Yeah. I think, I think to make it a job, you actually have to work on some games that aren't necessarily your passion projects. Yep. Uh, I think you do have to make some games that are product-focused. Um, but I, I think it's still possible, no matter what stage or where you are, that you can make games that you love. Uh, for instance, uh, I look at something like I realized uh, fantasy, fantasy, baseball, fantasy, fantasy, football. That's that's going to be a niche. I mean, we're trying to we're trying to capture sports fans and bring them into board games. So that that's a small one. And we're looking for people that are maybe board game and sports fans or board gamers that are willing to look past sports and just enjoy the game. But at the end of the day, that that that. You know, that's a smaller slice than if you're doing something that's a little more broad, a little more inclusive. Um, For instance, uh, I had uh, uh, Sagrada that came out and I'm enjoying loving seeing the response because I'm just seeing a real diversity of people that enjoy the game. But, um, you know, when we designed that game, we really did intentionally try to think of what, you know, we went through trying to think of themes and such for a while and and we actually that's an example of a game that we had a mechanical idea but we put it to simmer because we just couldn't think of a theme and then it just clicked so that's a example to me of like even when you get stuck like don't don't fret like that's part of the process that is a healthy stage for a game
0: Yeah. Okay. So we've talked about, you know, how you come up with ideas, the spark, how you generate ideas. We've talked about how you kind of shelf and, and put game ideas on the simmer. Let's talk about how you manage working on so many games at the same time. How do you juggle a hundred ish projects at the same time? What's your system? What do you do?
1: Yeah. I mean, a big thing is scheduling. I think a, a significant thing is, uh, for me is, uh, it's funny. Um, Before smartphones, I was an incredibly disorganized person. Hmm. I would say, like, my natural habitat is not organization. Um, But um, since smartphones, I've been able to set so many scheduled things that beep an alert at me that I will schedule anything from, like, just repeating things like, hey, have you thought of this game? Or check in with this designer. Or, you know, make sure you write the rules by this time and just set deadlines, set alerts that remind you, you know, beforehand that that is a huge tool for myself just to keep myself disciplined Um, when it comes to, like, for instance, shows, shows are a great way to keep being reminded which games need to come back to the forefront. Um, so because I'll, I'll check in with publishers that I'm working with, which gives me an opportunity to say, you know, A, you know, the games that I have with you already, where are they at and what do you need from me? And then out of a show, giving myself, you know, some some deadlines and targets uh, based on priority uh, of, you know, which games are coming out sooner or later. Uh, that becomes a, a really important tool. But I think also for IDW, for instance, I... Um, their work, you know, we check in on a weekly basis. We have timelines, spreadsheets for, you know, this this amount of time for dev work, this amount for art, release schedules, all that kind of stuff. So that that's pretty organized. That that becomes kind of easier for me. And then keeping good notes even when it comes to like rule books and such. I used to be able to keep all the rule books in my head. <laughs> but the minute I started with IDW, that yeah. was just that was that was it. I couldn't I couldn't remember all mine plus other people's. so Right.
0: And I was going to ask you about, you know, publishing companies and if they have systems that you kind of have to fall into if you're designing a game for them or developing a game. So it sounds like IDW, you know, they've got spreadsheets. I mean, that seems extremely organized. It makes sense. They're a business. What about other companies you've worked with? Do they kind of have a system that they plug you into to kind of keep things moving?
1: I wish. I uh, to, to be honest, to reveal a bit of behind the curtain in the Wizard of Oz <laughs> world of board games, yeah. uh, most game companies are like, a couple people. Right. And, and and so the reality is they're working on it when they can work on it. They're juggling just as much or more yeah. than we are. So anything from we're not seeing behind the curtain of cash flow. We're not seeing marketing. behind the curtain when it comes to marketing, production yeah. issues. Right. Like hearing things like it just cracked me up. Like today we had a meeting and we were talking about the projected date for a certain, a certain game. And they said, oh, well, this printer takes longer than that printer. Remember, we need to give them 13 weeks instead of 11. Yeah. And I was like, (laughs) what a a weird thing. But you know that, but you don't know that, too. Like, they had to have discovered that at some point. So at some point, they thought it was going to be 11, and it became 13. Mm -hmm. So um, I think think, uh, a lot of the times with publishers, they're just trying their best to stay afloat. And uh they're they're trying to figure out their schedules, but uh one one of the real practical things is understanding that games take way longer than you expect. Yeah. Uh when it comes to when it gets signed to when it comes out. I'm I have games that have been signed for about well, two years at least and still haven't met haven't got into the production cy- cycle mm-hmm. for certain publishers that when I check in they say, Yeah, it's coming, but we're not ready yet. So uh, I think it's really important a for designers to understand that even after you sign the game, your job's not done. It's it's potentially going to take a while. Uh, the other thing that's important is is think about that when you when you uh, set up a contract. Yeah. I think it's important to a either get an advance and not because you're money hungry or you're trying to squeeze them, but I think it's really important or helpful to use in advance or something like an advance in a contract to keep a uh, a publisher accountable yeah. to to work on the game i mean you're being compensated for your your time um that you've put into the game and and they're they're basically putting a little uh a little commitment to you saying right. we're for sure going to make this game yeah they're so putting they're skin a little, in the game they're putting a little skin in the game yeah. the other thing is to to have a uh, kind of a, a kill switch or an end date that if if a company doesn't work on something, or they're not in you know the production cycle by a certain time, I think it's really important to ask for your game back. Yeah, I mean you've you've lost out on some time. You're risking that uh, over that whole time, uh, you know, parallel design or something else doesn't kind of uh, oversaturate the market. So you're already at risk of that. So at the very least, getting your game back so that you may be able to find another publisher is, I think, really important.
0: Now, do you have a uh, a recommendation on amount of time?
1: Yeah, I mean, it really comes down to the publisher. So, I mean, if you're going to work with a smaller publisher, one of the benefits is they're probably going to get to it pretty quick. And they're probably willing to say in a contract that it's going to happen pretty quick because they're going to know their timelines. Uh, they might be looking for a release for next year or for a specific con like Gen Con or Essen. However, if it's a bigger publisher, I mean, it really then comes down to a question of how long are you willing to wait? I, I know for myself, if I was getting to work with, you know, a major publisher like, say, Yellow or or um, Asmodee, you know, these really large companies that have a lot of moving parts, uh, you know the game's going to be great whenever it comes out, but you, you might be willing to wait longer. Yeah. Maybe it's two years, maybe it's three years um, for the game to actually come out. And then if that's the case, then just live with that. Um, the, other, the other option is I've had companies that, Say, you know, at X amount of time they'll give you an advance or give you back the game. So there's kind of like incremental. Like the longer they hold it, at least it costs them more. Yeah. Uh, so I think that's a great idea. Um, yeah. There's different ways to structure it. I think that everyone involved knows what you know what the motivation is there, and hopefully it doesn't come to that. But you want to you want to figure that out on the front end of the relationship, not uh, later on when. You know, you wished you had that conversation.
0: Yeah, and I think this brings up a good point. It's not its not just about managing a bunch of games at the same time. It's managing a bunch of timelines at the same time and a bunch of deadlines at the same time. It's managing a lot of time, uh, more than just design or development.
1: Mm. Yeah, I mean, even for myself, I try to get a realistic picture of when games are going to come out and hope that I can manage them to kind of spread out a little bit. Um, I joked that when I first did a whole bunch of signings at one convention, all of a sudden all my games would come out and I could just run around the convention. <laughs> but I, I think it's important to try to space them out so that you can promote your games and support your games, yeah. answer questions. You know, there's just a lot involved when your game comes out, and you wanna, you wanna give each one like the care that you can.
0: Yeah. Now, do you have a different system for managing games you're designing or co-designing as
1: compared to developing? Yes, absolutely. So, I mean, one of the nice things when that I interpret development is I'm actually not making changes. I'm coming alongside a designer and trying to give them feedback. Yeah. So I, I see that the development process is more me saying, hey, I noticed these things that I think are getting in the way of the message you're trying to tell or the story you're trying to tell. So here's some rule suggestions. Here's some you know flaws that maybe even I don't know how, what the solution is, but you know, could you work on this? that it might be practical things like bridging the conversation between product and game design yeah. so it might be like hey you know we need a component reduction or a component change um so those kind of conversations are more what i see development work as uh design definitely is uh, it's just a different beast it's kind of an all-consuming you know you're thinking about it all the time and it might you know your solutions come from the weirdest of places so um uh, but development is usually you just put in the work you put in the time of reading things over and over again getting it to the table over and over again and just kind of tracking is what the designer said they want to accomplish is is the game doing that
0: yeah now we've talked a lot about deadlines and you know how important they are and how really great they are to kind of push products forward but how have you run into to problems with this like how how often do deadlines really um, kind of make design design decisions for you or kind of move the game in a certain way just because you're trying to hit a deadline?
1: Uh, yeah, that's a good question. Um, well, um, I can think of... Uh, I don't have a lot of examples of time restraints forcing a design other than um, one, for instance, I did Back to the Future Out of Time as mm-hmm. a dice game. Uh, when I originally designed it, it was actually designed with custom dice that showed the different characters and i had designed it that the cards would be different lines and you were accomplishing scenes Mm -hmm. so like each card would be like kind of like almost like a comic scene of like characters saying lines and you had to roll the characters and get them in order so that that scene would happen yeah and that scene would accomplish something like some sort of uh energy like oh did see that lawnmower over there? Yeah, grab that. I need the engine from that. Or something. And you're piecing together to get 1.21 gigawatts yeah. of energy from all these different cards. Well, in the production cycle, they were like, so we love the game. We love the mechanic. We don't have time to do those art assets. So we're going to do basically one generic card. And that's all we have time for. All right. And I was like, wow, that is drastically different than the story I thought I'd get to tell. Yeah. But uh, at the same time, you know, I was super excited to get to do a licensed game and i thought the mechanic is still strong for what they're going for it's a mass market game uh so we went for it and uh you know it's it's never going to be a game that you know the board game hobby is going to be super excited about but the fun part is i know lots of people that really enjoy the game and especially people that you know they enjoy monopoly they enjoy that like they they have that that cup and they think oh i love back to the future and you know, look at this cool, you know, these cool dice and this cool, you know, DeLorean and, and have a good time with it. Well, at the end of the day, I'm satisfied that that's who it meets. I, I'm disappointed that it doesn't have the thematic integration that I wanted. We even – a good friend of mine, Chris Leder, uh who did Roll for it, he is one of the biggest Back to the Future fans I know in the world. And so thankfully he was one of was my main play tester. He was, uh, you know, head of development if I could have hired him, you know, yeah. I would have – and he even came up with a few alternatives, like, oh, here's an idea of, like, finding items through time, and each card was just, like, a, a basic item, and, you know, the art could have been just, like, you know, grabbed from different comics, and even that, it was just kind of like, no, uh, we, you know, we don't have time for that. Now, the, the real kicker in that story is, so that mm-hmm. happened, they sent the files right away to a printer, then the printer informed them two months later... That they still hadn't started yet, <laughs> but that they were going to start any day now. Uh huh. Awesome. Um, so yeah. So it was like, well, we could have done all that, mm-hmm. but because the printer thought it would be easier to say, ask for forgiveness than permission, right? Um, we missed out on that opportunity. So
0: yeah. Any Any other times where a deadline a deadline's coming up and you're like, okay, this isn't exactly what I want, but this works, kind of thing. Have you run into
1: that? Um. Not um, not on my side. Okay. I, I haven't had that yet, um, thankfully. Um, usually, I mean, because I'm freelance design, usually I get to choose even when I'm going to pitch something. Yeah. Uh, the only the only time that I could see that really being a restraint is if you promise a game for someone or you haven't finished the design and then you need to finish it by X amount of days. Um, or that might be through a licensing deal. Um, that might be through just you, you sold a game on concept. Um, but for myself, I haven't, uh, I haven't run into that yet, uh, thankfully and, uh, hopefully never will. <laughs> yeah.
0: All right. So what are the advantages of working on lots of games at the same time? I mean, I can come up with all sorts of like problems that can come out of it. And we've talked about, you know, you forget things and, you know, things can get, uh, disorganized and whatnot, but what are the main advantages y- you find from having so many games that you're working on right now?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think it keeps you fresh, it keeps you sharp. Uh it gets you thinking outside of your own um kind of path that you're you often get stuck on. You know, you start to think of games mixing together. So for instance, if I'm working on a on a dice game, I might not be thinking of certain mechanics uh until all of a sudden I'm playing another game and I think, "Oh, I wonder what a dice would do here." Yeah. You know, like it causes you to ask questions that you wouldn't normally, or you might actually find solutions while working on one game that are actually solutions for another. Uh, So that, that becomes really, really helpful. Another thing is as, uh, as you get more designs, you learn from your own mistakes. So hopefully, uh, you're not making the same mistakes again. So that becomes a really helpful thing. Although there's plenty of, uh, mistakes to be found. So, You build almost what I call uh, a designer intuitiveness. Uh, You you start to learn, oh, you know people respond this way when I do this more, and they're you know so I'm going to avoid those obstacles or hurdles. Um, Sometimes like you start to establish a taste that I think is really helpful, knowing you know how long certain things should take. And so you just kind of have a gut feeling like, oh, this is taking too long. You know, where do we need to trim things? Or this this needs some added complexity. This is too light. Uh, so you, you gain a taste. And then I think the other thing that is helpful with multiple designs is especially when you start to dabble into expansions. Yeah, I think uh, forcing yourself to think think of how to work on a game in a new way is really helpful and you don't get to dabble on that always when you're doing individual designs but when you start to do more games in the same world or the same concept so for instance um, fantasy fantasy baseball we knew we were doing at least three sports because we promised that in the first kickstarter so we knew we were doing football and hockey and we knew hockey had the license so we're pretty confident you know that's going to that's gonna probably take care of itself. We'll keep it, you know, family friendly and lighter, and just make sure that you know that appeals more to the masses. Yeah. So we were like, well, how are we gonna make football different? And what I think is really helpful when you're working on lots of different designs is it gives you permission to not feel like you have to, like, use up every good idea in this one game. You right. can spread them out. And so there were stuff that hit the chopping floor for baseball that it didn't get chopped because it wasn't fun. It got chopped because it didn't fit baseball. Mm -hmm. And so we got to come back to that and go, now does that fit football? And there were certain things that really did. And we went, oh, well, perfect. So I I think it even just gives you opportunity that when you have a a kind of a brainwave spark that you can find a place to use it when you have multiple projects.
0: Yeah. All right, so closing thoughts any kind of advice you would give somebody who has you know 50 games on their brain they've got all these notes all these games they want to work on they want to do any kind of advice on how to maintain or how to manage all those ideas and actually create some games as opposed to just having a bunch of ideas
1: yeah i mean the one of the first things i do is just start making making them yeah. like stop stop letting them swirl around in your head and just sit down and start churning stuff out and then you know, just the practicality. Like for myself, I use like a lot of the like the deck case boxes that uh, you know Magic players will often use or whatnot for um, where they like sleeve their cards or or keep their cards uh, just in a nice small package. I'll buy like ten or twenty of those, and I'll just make cards for like all my games mm-hmm. or my ideas, and just so that I have something physically labeled. I go, okay, that is that, and then just seeing a stack of them around me. If I'm like, oh, I want to work on that, like the physicality of having a box and having some bits all, you know, grouped together to just start playing with it, I think is really helpful. I, for me, I'm a visual, visual person, so just kind of moving the bits around if there's a map, or just rolling dice and playing cards, like just get it moving, get it going, get it in front of people. I think that's that's the the, the main step is do that, and then. Uh, the step that I'm horrible at is is make sure you write those rules as you're going, and make sure you know you keep keeping track of where you're at. I mean, do do that administrative work as well.
0: Yeah, no, I think that's incredible advice. Get something on a table, get it out of your head, get it out of your notes, and get anything on a table and just move it around because you're gonna find yep. nine times out of ten, just in that initial messing around with it on the table, you're gonna figure out is this game any good? Does it have potential, or is this just yep. an idea that worked in my head but doesn't work? on the table. I think that's really good. Daryl, man, really appreciate your time. Appreciate your insight on all this. We're about to head into a bonus round. We're going to talk about how to bring a licensed IP to life, how to make that licensed IP really uh, feel like the actual movie or the, the game or the comic, whatever it is. Daryl's got a, a good bit of insight in that. He's worked on a number of different licensed games. So I'm interested to hear your thoughts on that. But anyway, Daryl, again, thanks for your time and good luck with all the many, many, many projects that you have going on right now.
1: Uh, Thank you very much. I really appreciate being on the show. Thanks for listening. Find all sorts of game design
0: resources, bonus material, and chances to win free games at boardgamedesignlab.com. And until next time, keep designing, keep playtesting, and keep creating great games. Did I mention keep playtesting?